Well, welcome to y'all uh, to the Institute of World Politics. A presentation today by Mark Hansen of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. For those of you who don't know, uh, IWP is a fully accredited, small, independent graduate school. Uh, you get three degrees, full degrees, plus uh, master's degrees. Those two uh, others, uh, uh, executive and then a professional master's degree, plus uh, 17 certificates. Uh, normally, I would uh, I would be introducing Mark, but we're going to add a layer here. My friend Mark Schroeder, whom I've known since we both worked uh, on the Hill in the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee back in the 80s. Uh, he's an adjunct with us here, teaches on basically defense budgets and all that sort of interesting stuff. Um, and we like to keep our faculty happy here, so I, I, I certainly agree to uh, allow Wayne to, uh, not allow, but uh, Wayne asked to do it. So, Wayne, why don't you come up and introduce Mark? Thank you. Thank you, uh, Mac, I appreciate that very, very much. Uh, again, welcome to the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new to IWP, we're a graduate school in national security and international affairs, focusing on teaching the arts of statecraft to a new generation of foreign policy and national security leaders. Uh, we offer 18 certificates of study, five master's degree programs in the various arts and elements of statecraft. Today's event is on the record and will be recorded. It's my pleasure to introduce Mark Hansen. Uh, Mark is a retired uh, colonel, U.S. Marine Corps Reserve, is a senior advisor with the Center for Strategic and International Studies International Security Program. He joined CSIS in April 2015 from the Office of Management and Budget. We spent more than seven years as chief of the Force Structure and Investment Division, working on issues such as the Department of Defense budget strategy, war funding, and procurement programs, as well as nuclear weapons development and non-proliferation activities in the Department of Energy. Previously, and this is where I first got to know Mark, uh, uh, he worked on force structure and acquisition issues in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, uh, Office of Program Analysis and Evaluation, the old PA&E, where he ran, and he also uh, ran executive programs at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government in the military. Bill Kansian spent over three decades in the U.S. Marine Corps, active in reserve, serving as an infantry, artillery, and civil affairs officer, and on overseas tours in Vietnam, Desert Storm, and twice in Iraq. It is my great pleasure to introduce Mark Kansian. Mark? Wayne, thank you very much. You're welcome. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm Mark Kansian, and uh, I'm going to talk a little about a recent study we did over at CSIS. Um, and although the study was key to some particular assumptions, I think it raises a bunch of interesting questions uh, that are relevant, uh, will be relevant to a new administration that comes in in January and as it uh, starts to think about its initial uh, strategic review. Uh, the study raises questions about the nature of strategy and what you want strategy to do, uh, the range of strategic options that are available to a new administration, how you evaluate a strategy, uh, the trade-offs that different strategies make, and then finally, since this is a uh, election season, we'll take a look at where the candidates are and how 
their views align with the kind of strategies that the uh, um, uh, study uh, proposed or laid out. Uh, let's see if this works. Okay. A note, an offer, and a disclaimer. Uh, the note is that having spent many years in the Pentagon, I've lost the ability to speak without PowerPoint. So I'm going to be using PowerPoint. And I know that many people criticize PowerPoint, uh, uh, but I find it very, a very useful tool when used appropriately. Uh, the note, the offer, is that if you have any questions, please uh, uh, ask them as we go along. Don't wait until the end. I'm happy to answer your questions. And the final disclaimer, this is on the record, but I'd ask you to uh, note that these are my personal views. They aren't necessarily the views of CSIS or the US government where I used to work. Okay, here's the uh, study guidance that we uh, um, uh, received for our, our uh, study, and it was built to the BCA uh, budget caps because the department was concerned what it might be able to do if it was actually going to be constrained uh, to those you know, Budget Control Act or what some people call sequestration caps. The guidance looks pretty straightforward, but it actually raises a fundamental question about strategy. Uh, Clark Murdoch and I, Clark was my uh, uh, colleague for the study, our view on, on strategy was that strategy should, should line up strategic goals, uh, programs and forces, and budgets, the, the classic ends, ways, and means. But that uh, approach is not universal. If you look at the uh, um, statutory language for the Quadrennial Defense Review, the old QDR, it said that strategy had to be devised without reference to a budget level. In other words, a strategy should be unconstrained and that fiscal constraints should come in uh, later. And when I was at uh, CSIS, we did a, another study. I won't uh, point fingers at the guilty parties, but we had exactly this, this discussion. You know, should this, the, the proposals that we made uh, uh, that we made be constrained by resources, or should we just say what the, we thought the administration ought to do and ignore uh, the constraints of resources? Because, of course, when you start constraining your strategy, then you have to make some trade-offs that are sometimes uh, very difficult. Uh, now, on that, I'm, I'm happy to say that the constraint side, side won, uh, but it was a, a, a real discussion, even at the, you know, a think tank. Uh, let's see. The challenge, the study was driven by some previous work that CSIS had done. You can see uh, uh, that work here. <clears throat> Back in 2013, we had done a, a study called uh, Building an Affordable Military, and it documented what we call the double whammy. That is, you have the cost caps that are imposed by the Budget Control Act of 2011. In other words, the resources available to the department had declined. Plus, you have cost growth above um, inflation in a number of key areas. Of course, acquisition is one. Many people have uh, noted that you know, there's cost growth in many acquisition programs, but also in O&M and personnel. If you look at the uh, operations and maintenance budget per uh, military personnel, person, uh, service member, you know, that has been going up in constant dollars. And the cost of a, of a military uh, um, service member has been going up also in constant dollars, and a lot of people have, have uh, written about that. So what you can buy has been hollowed out. You can buy less even with the same amount of money. At the same time, the strategy has been stretched. The uh, 
current strategy that the administration put out in 2014 and had sort of devised over the previous year or two uh, did not allow or did not include uh, an aggressive Russia <clears throat> because the uh, takeover of the Ukraine, <coughs> excuse me, uh, and the aggression in the, uh, excuse me, the takeover of the Crimea and the aggression in, in Ukraine had not occurred. It didn't fully account for what people are calling an assertive China, the island building that they had been doing, that they've now been doing in the South China Sea, and the pushes they have made uh, to extend their uh, influence in the Pacific. And it didn't include the rise of ISIS, which occurred right as this new strategy was coming out. So uh, the, the, so the threats that the strategy was aimed at had changed radically just at the time that the strategy was coming out. So the, the, the problem the department was facing was they were having few, fewer dollars that bought less for the strategy that was expanding. So you get this um, uh, strategy resources gap uh, that the department was concerned about that generated our study and frankly is, is still with us. Here's a lay down of strategies that we came up with. We were working amongst ourselves in a study group, plus we had an, a group of outside uh, experts working with us. And I'll walk you through uh, the individual uh, strategies. We tried to be comprehensive to uh, um, include, you know, make them all different and, all, and include, you know, all of the concepts that were uh, out there. First, you have global engagement, which was the balanced approach. You're going to uh, try to do something in many different regions, the Pacific, uh, the Middle East, and Europe. Uh, you have Asia Pacific, and this is probably where Bush and Obama wanted to go, but were pushed uh, uh, elsewhere by the events, uh, global events. You know, Bush, of course, was pushed into the Middle East by Afghanistan and Iraq. Obama announced a rebalance to, the, uh, to Asia, but then found the rise of ISIS and the uh, uh, aggressiveness of Russia was pulling him back to more traditional uh, regions. You have Europe engagement, which would focus on Europe and Russia. Russia was identified as the top challenge to the United States by uh, Secretary Carter and uh, the Chairman of Joint Chiefs, uh, as well as many other senior officials. So this would be a strategy that would focus on Europe and that threat. A strategy of combating uh, terrorism and uh, Islamic extremism. This is a strategy that would uh, emphasize counterterrorism and special operations forces. <clears throat> and then finally, great comp power competition. This is a, a phrase I think you're hearing uh, more and more. And the idea there is that you would focus on China and Russia. You would not be as uh, engaged globally, but you would build up your high-end capabilities focusing a lot on fifth-generation aircraft, for example, high-end uh, high uh, um, naval forces and uh, science and technology, uh, pulling back from the day-to-day -day global engagement that uh, traditionally the United States has done when it wasn't facing a, a fair competitor. To link... Uh, Strategies and resources, we used uh, 
a tool we call the force cost calculator that CSIS has uh, devised. And here you see a, a description of it. Um, it was built back uh, well, 2012, 2013 for this previous study, and then updated and refined uh, for this study. And what it does is it takes inputs. There are about 80 inputs for forces, readiness, um, infrastructure, science and technology, and turns those into a budget. So you can iterate and arrive at a certain budget level. In other words, you can, you can change your inputs and see where the budget comes out and then adjust your inputs to come out at a particular budget level. And of course, we were aimed at uh, the Budget Control Act uh, level, the sequestration uh, level. But I've also used it since then to look at the defense programs of various presidential candidates. And at the end, you'll see that uh, I, I also ran Trump's proposed force structure through here and uh, got a expected uh, budget for that. <clears throat> um, well, here you can just see some little more background on it. It picks up, it tries, picks up the, uh, uh, the indirect costs that are associated with uh, forces and equipment also. So that if you buy, for example, an Army Brigade, you get not just the Brigade, but the support that goes with it and a chunk of the infrastructure that goes with it. So here's the force structure that the force cost calculator produced for each of the different strategies. Uh, these were constrained to the Budget Control Act level, uh, as the study uh, guidance had directed, but of course you could build it to different budget levels. The first column is the current strategy. Now that's built to the President's budget, proposed budget level, which is higher than the Budget Control Act. So the forces are higher because it's built to a higher budget level. The other five columns are built to the Sequestration Budget Control Act uh, level. And each one of them you know, has a little different mix of forces based on what that strategy is trying to accomplish. So here for global engagement, you can see it's a pretty balanced um, uh, set of forces. You have a pretty large air force because you've retained a lot of fourth generation aircraft, figuring that when you're talking about global commitments, you don't need the high end aircraft for all of those commitments. Um, pretty large number of Navy ships for this budget level. Now, if you, of course, you get a little more uh, money, you can uh, bring that, that number up. Um, uh, Marine Corps, you can see the Army is uh, uh, at a, a 421, you know, because uh, you know, you've got to take some cuts someplace, and the cuts have pretty much come across uh, uh, the board. <clears throat> uh, Asia Pacific actually ends up looking a lot like global engagement. At one point, that was a very Navy Air Force heavy strategy. But a lot of the uh, expert panel pushed back on it. And they said, you know, you can't forget Korea. You've got to keep a relatively large army to handle Korea. So the army was, was beefed up, because originally the army was down around 400 uh, uh, for that strategy. So the army was beefed up a bit. and. Uh, uh, and the other, the other elements cut, taken down a bit. So um, you couldn't emphasize, for example, the Navy as much as you might have wanted. <clears throat> With Europe, however, because of the focus on Russia, you've built up the army uh, and taken some risk elsewhere, particularly on the Navy. 
Uh, you can see it's, it's uh, well, the smallest navy uh, there because it's just very hard to get the navy at the Russians, particularly when you're looking at the Baltics. Islamic extremists, here you, you want to put a lot of emphasis on special operations forces so you can see down here on soft units, that's the highest uh, amount. The Marine Corps also comes out pretty well because of its uh, global capabilities that you can use in a counterterrorism um, uh, kind of campaign. Fifth generation aircraft is way down. In other words, you don't need a lot of F-35 to drop bombs on terrorists. But you keep a relatively large number of legacy aircraft because they can drop bombs on terrorists. And then finally, on great power competition, you take the army way down because now you know, you're holding forces back in the United States. You're putting a lot of effort <clears throat> excuse me, into high-end capa capabilities. So on Navy ships, you actually it's a little hard to see here, but you, you're buying a lot of high-end destroyers and submarines. Uh, on the Air Force, you can see you're buying a lot of fifth-generation aircraft, a lot of F-35s. Very expensive, but useful against uh, uh, sophisticated air defenses. A lot of bombers, because you're projecting power from the United States. Uh, Marine Corps takes a hit because you're not doing that day-to-day -day global engagement that uh, uh, you, you would on, under other strategies. And soft units also take a hit because, again, you know, you're pulling back uh, from that day-to-day -day global engagement. The previous discussion might be called the supply side. In other words, what forces do you have? We then switched to the demand side. In other words, what do you want the forces to do? We could spend all day talking about scenarios. I'm going to uh, note that we had 12 and describe them, uh, uh, you know, give a little description of them. But I say, you can spend a lot of time sort of thinking about scenarios and how they might come uh, about. <clears throat> we had some, some for major combat operations, you know, in other words, major wars, others for lesser demands. Some were long-standing, you know, Korea, China, Taiwan, Iranian Straits, home, Straits, Iran Straits, Homeland Security. Those scenarios have been for, around for a long time. I think they're pretty, pretty well understood. But there were some new. The Baltics, a new scenario. Uh, a Russian, almost said Soviet, uh, <laughs> a Russian uh, g grab of the, uh, uh, the Baltics. Uh, Iranian denuclearization, in other words, an air campaign to take out Iranian nuclear capabilities, a Korean nuclear crisis that's not part of a cross-border invasion, but uh, is uh, uh, driven by Korea and either use of nuclear weapons or threat of nuclear weapons, and then something down in you know, South China Sea that doesn't involve a full, at least at this point, a full conflict with, the, with China, but some sort of localized regional conflict. We also had to build simultaneity sets. Because if you take these 12 scenarios one by one, DOD can do all of them. The problems, the challenges arise when you start grouping them together, when DOD has to do several things at the same time. Uh, that's what stretches the, the forces. The classic, of course, for the last 25 years has been the two major conflicts. Uh, simultaneously, or what they say, near simultaneously. And then there have been variations on that, adding homeland security and day-to-day -day operations. <clears throat> so we built these off of what was publicly available from QDR 2010 and 2014. Um, and 
certain elements of the department had maybe let some things slip out, which was very helpful for us. Um, we modified them to uh, accommodate our new uh, scenarios, and ultimately we devised uh, four sets, and I'll show you those in a minute. Before I go on to that, though, I just want to give a brief overview of force demands and sort of the conventional way of thinking about force demands. The first piece are surge, and I think that's the, the first way people would think, think about force demands. In other words, two conflicts uh, where you just use all the forces you have, you have, you, you have mobilization authorities, uh, and you send everybody off to fight you know, two conflicts, and you've still got some residual commitments that you've got to meet, but those are now uh, squeezed down. Then there were the, uh, and for that, for a surge, you don't need rotation bases. You just send everybody off to the war. For day-to-day -day, uh, uh, demands, you have a, sort of a, kind of a couple of flavors. At the bottom here, you can see Homeland Security. And you know, from day-to-day, -day, there are certain things that we have to do for Homeland Security. We've got some missile defense things going on. You know, you've got the guards doing a few things um, uh, for you know, natural disasters or something go uh, going on. Uh, you have a lot of day-to-day -day for deployments. You know, you send out Navy carrier battle groups, you send out Marine uh, ARGs uh, around the globe, uh, you know, to show the flag and then to be ready to respond if there's an emergency. And then you've got what I, what I call small-scale contingencies. And, you know, these things have been through many different uh, nomenclatures. But these are things like, you know, the commitments in the Sinai. You know, we're committed to, we've got two battalions in the Sinai keeping the peace since... Uh, 1983, I think. Um, uh, you know, Bosnia, Kosovo, th those were kind of small-scale contingencies that have a certain lifetime but don't rise to the level of a major conflict. For those, you need a rotation base. In other words, you can't just send someone out to the Sinai and just leave them there. You know, they've got to be able to come back and spend some time at home. So, you, you know, you need a rotation base, maybe three to one, four to one, something like that. There's this notion also out here, I, I called it irregular warfare, it really should be stability operations. You know, maybe, uh, you know, a, an occupation like in Iraq, something that goes on for uh, some period of time. Uh, DOD has said that they're not going to size forces for that requirement anymore. <clears throat> it's quite controversial, and of course it might uh, be required. The Army argues that, you know, you can say that all you want, but, you know, when the time comes, you may have to do it anyway. Okay, so what do the scenarios look like? And I don't want to take too, too, too much time here. Uh, I think you're probably pretty familiar with most of them. You know, Korea, you know, the canonical uh, major conflict on the Korean Peninsula defending against the North Korean attack. Um, strike at Riga. Rand has done a lot of very uh, interesting work on this in the last, I don't know, year, 18 months making the case that this is a, a real threat because of the speed with which with, with the Russians could act. China-Taiwan, you know, once upon a time this was known as the Million Man Swim, you know, but now the Chinese have built capabilities where they can, uh, might actually be able to uh, pull it off. The Iranian uh, denuclearization, and that's the idea that we might launch an air campaign sometime to take out Iranian nuclear capabilities. And a lot of people argue that that's not a good idea, but it's certainly been on the table. And then an Iranian uh, major combat operation about closing the Straits. In other words, the Iranians try to close the Straits of Hormuz, and the United States and allied coalition forces try to open it up. 
uh, turned out not to be a major force driver because the, the amount of force you need to open the straits is just not that uh, large. Uh, and you can see some of the comments on the other one, you know, for Iran, you know, full denuclearization is, is impossible, you know, just because it's hard to find all of their pieces. But I mean, you could beat down their nuclear capabilities. Uh, here we go. I don't want to spend a lot of time on these because none of these were really major force drivers. These were more like small scale contingencies, the Spratleys, North Korea. Some of them, like North Korea, very interesting from a crisis management perspective, not a big driver of uh, forces. Russia hybrid warfare. Same thing, not a big driver of forces. Very interesting from a conflict management point of view. Stabilizing a country, uh, Islamic extremists breakout. Um, again, you know, be a big driver of soft. Doesn't look as likely now. You know, ISIS has been beaten back. The territory has been compressed when we were doing this. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, but you said that the North Korea scenario wasn't a big driver. This is the North Korean nuclear crisis. There were, there were two. One, the first one. Yeah. That's right. The first one was the invasion. That is a big driver. Yep. Uh, and then Russian hybrid, you can see a driver of day-to-day -day demands. In other words, you might have to send a lot of forces in Eastern Europe and rotate them to reassure our allies. Um, Homeland Security was and an interesting set of uh, discussions around Homeland Security. Basically, about how how much of DO, how much was DoD going to do in Homeland Security? Uh, the, the the three scenarios we have here are pretty standard. You see, yeah. Um, I didn't notice anything about the ballistics. I, I think the ballistics are quite high on the list. Uh, we had oh the no the Baltics was uh, was the uh, here strike at Riga. Oh, okay. Yeah. So no, absolutely it it. it uh, uh, and that's a, that's relatively new. I, I used to uh, I teach a course over at SICE. Can I say that here? Okay, I teach I, I teach a course over at SICE, and I used to have you know some Russian students come through. And I remember a couple of years ago I told them there's good news and bad news about the Russians. I mean the good news is we're we're not planning a war against you. The bad news is you didn't make the cut. Um, that's not true anymore. <clears throat> So three sort of standard scenarios for Homeland Security. Uh, terrorist conventional attack, you know, with the, the, the notion of 9-11 uh, uh, being sort of a, a standard case. Uh, I say moderate uh, force driver. An extreme national, uh, natural disaster, you know, Hurricane Katrina is what Hurricane Andrew, Hurricane Sandy, something like that. Uh, again, not a really major uh, force structure driver. And then a terrorist WMD attack. And there, a lot depends on what you want DOD to do. Um, for all of these, of course, the local first responders would have uh, uh, authority and would you know, be the first responders. DOD would be uh, uh, in support. Uh, but you know, how much support would they, would they provide? This question here about Governors holding back National Guard units back. We'll talk a little about that. 
Well, I'll talk about it here. I, talk, I also talk about it in the risks section. But one of the risks is that, that if there's a major conflict, the, national, the governors will want to hold some of their, na their National Guard back to protect against terrorist attacks uh, or natural disasters. Now, in theory, of course, they, they can't do that. Uh, but during the 2000s, during the uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was an informal agreement. It was a little more than informal, actually. It was actually written down, where DOD said that they would try not to take more than half of the National Guard units of a state away so that half of them could be at home to deal with unexpected domestic emergencies. <laughs> well, if the governors tried to uh, impose that during a major uh, conflict, you know, where you have two, you know, conflicts going on, that would be a huge uh, constraint and a, a very large reduction in the forces available. And this thing about national lockdown, I had a lot of arguments with the, the non-pro people. You know, the notion there is that if there's a WMD incident, that we would have a national lockdown, you know, where everything, you know, we would basically search every room in the United States to make sure that there wasn't uh, a nuclear weapon in there and that the military would be used to do that. And I said, that is crazy. Um, not, not that you wouldn't do a lockdown and look for a nuclear weapon, but the idea that you would have the military do that. But uh, I say, but there's a school of thought that says, no, we're going to use military forces for that lockdown. Um, some, some insights came, came uh, sort of cross-service. The first one is the need to separate military tasks from contractors, allies, and civilians. DOD naturally thinks in terms of military. And in fact, the default is active duty military. You need to think more broadly about all of the personnel options available to them, particularly, let's say, contractors, allies, and civilians. Uh, um, Brad Carson, who used to be the Undersecretary for Policy, used to say, DOD doesn't have a theory of the case on how it divides up these responsibilities. And that, that came through, particularly up in here, because you know, our, our argument was, no, you know, have first responders do that. If you need contractors, do that. Uh, government civilians, that's all, that's all fine, but we don't feel comfortable building military forces for that. <clears throat> and then so scenario timelines are different. You know, some of them you've got a lot of flexibility. Like if you are denuclearizing Iran, you can do that at whatever pace you want. On the other hand, for a Korean invasion scenario, they're driving the schedule, so you don't really have a lot of latitude there, at least on what used to be called the halt phase. Same with the Russians. You don't have a lot of uh, latitude. All right, so you have, once you've got your forces, your strategy, your simultaneity, uh, you have to have some criteria for how you're going to judge the uh, different strategies. <clears throat> and this just gives you a little sense about um, the criteria we used. There's a full description in the uh, study, uh, so I'll just go over it uh, quickly. I do want to highlight one thing in the study that we felt was, uh, I think, an important contribution that we've argued very strongly with the department, which is to talk about risk in policy terms. You know, DOD tends to talk about risk in terms of high, medium, and low, or you know, red, yellow, green, and that's not really very helpful. You know, maybe it means something inside the department, but our argument was, you know, for someone outside the department, it really doesn't tell you you know, how, how much of a problem it is. So we argued, talk about it in terms of specific risks. You know, for example, in Korea, 
you know, a smaller army causes risk, not in the halt phase. In other words, not to stop the North Koreans from coming south, because no matter how big an army you have, you can't get it there in time. Basically, you're using whatever you have uh, on the ground for the army. Uh, you can maybe able to get some air forces and naval forces there. <clears throat> but it's in the phase three, the counteroffensive. In other words, as the army is smaller, you have to rely more on reserve units, which take a lot of time to get ready. To get a National Guard combat brigade ready, you know, pick a number, a lot of controversy, but let's say nine months. So you may have to wait nine months to launch your counteroffensive. And there's risk to that because, of course, there's fighting that's going on. The fighting could spread. Um, you know, the U.S. homeland could be attacked. You, you, know, you could lose allies. A lot of bad things that could happen by that uh, delay. Similarly, if you pick on the Army again, long-term stability, the risk is when you have to build new forces. If you look back in uh, the experience in Iraq, uh, U.S. should have been expanding the Army probably in 2004, when it became clear we were going to need a third rotation. Instead, they waited two more years until 2006, and by that time, you know, the Army had been under tremendous stress. So the, the risk here is having to make a very early decision to expand the size of the Army at a time when you're hoping that you're going to wrap this thing up. This is a chart that only an analyst could like. Uh, and so I'm not going to go through all of the, the numbers. Again, if you look at the uh, full study online, you can, you can get all the, all the details. I do want to note that <clears throat> we had a lot of discussion about what's the baseline. You know, how do you compare? You know, what's one? What's good? And where we finally ended up was one was equal to the current strategy. So we said, all right, the current strategy is one in all of these categories. And we'll compare this, the other proposed strategies, the alternative strategies to that. Is it better or worse than, than that? And got a score based on that. Now, a lot of people said, but we don't know whether the current forces are adequate to execute the current strategy. And we said that that's absolutely true. And if you give us another $200,000, we'll be happy to answer that question because you know, measuring, figuring out the answer to that is very important, but it, you know, it's a, a great deal of work. This just gives a quick overview of the, uh, how the strategies came out, and it's uh, no, I think, real surprises there. Global engagement, of course, is balanced. It hedges against an uncertain future, but it's not strong in any individual area. In other words, you've got weaknesses in all of the regions in the Middle East in Europe and in uh, the Pacific. Pacific Asia-Pacific engagement, of course, addresses China as a long-term challenge and also does something for Korea. Uh, but uh, you know, there's still risk uh, in Korea and, of course, Europe and the Middle East get uh, much less coverage. <clears throat> Europe, the large army, very useful there in countering the Russians. Some, you have two problems. I mean, one is you got accept risk elsewhere, and you know, there's a question about you know, does Russia really have the, the staying power uh, to you know to be a long-term threat, the same way that China apparently does. Although some, I know there's some con controversy about that also. Islamic extremists, as you might imagine, you build up your soft forces, but you take a lot of risk uh, in in peer conflicts, and then great power competitor, you've built up your 
your uh, forces, your capabilities for peer competitors, but you've pulled back from your day-to-day -day engagement and the allies uh, may get nervous or even um, um, pull away. Breaking out of the fiscal box. Eh, we're, we're good on time. Um, a lot of people look at this and they say, I don't like any of those choices. Let's cut overhead and save money, and then we can buy back forces and we won't have to make some of these tough trade-offs. And I said, okay. So let's talk about how you might do that. The baseline already assumed that you got BRAC and DOD's po proposed efficiencies, neither of which will probably happen. Uh, so you're already in the hole. Uh, internal reform, you know, useful, but typically they don't generate a lot of savings. In other words, just pure efficiencies. And when I say pure efficiencies, I'm talking about getting the same output for less input. Get very hard to do, I mean, worth keeping at. Um, if you really want to save money, you've got to look at the full range of infrastructure. And, you know, here are all the different elements. There's been a lot of focus recently about management headquarters. And, you know, it, there's a, a good argument to, to look at management headquarters. But the reason to do that is for better decision making. You don't save much money. Only about 4% of civilians are in the management headquarters. So even if you put 25% of them out, you've saved 1% of your civilian uh, workforce. So you're not going to save money. You may have a better decision making process. And of course, one person's excessive overhead is another person's vital support program. And identifying major reductions you know, might require uh, an external review. Um, there was a, an ODEAN panel that came in in the 1990s that made a bunch of recommendations about infrastructure uh, reduction. You might need to do something like that. Again, we were sort of hinting to, in fact, we actually, I think, proposed to, to do that. But this way, you know, one person's overhead is another person's vital support program. You know, uh, uh, commissaries, classic example. Uh, many people point to commissaries as something that was necessary when you had isolated posts on the frontier. But now that when you have safe way outside the front gate, you know, do you really need a, a commissary? Well, of course, you listen to the, particularly the retired community. Three of us are right here. Um, they're very uh, vocal about the need for commissaries. <clears throat> um, look at expanding uh, battlefield contractors and host nation support. Uh, whenever I mention this, a lot of military officers start getting white knuckles. You know, we rely on contractors too much. And I had a conversation actually with a senior army officer about this who said he was uncomfortable about the extent to which they were relying on contractors. They said, fair enough. Uh, how many BCTs will you give up to buy back those logistics units? And he said, well, I can't give any of them up. I said, well, there's, there's your answer. <laughs> uh, yes, go ahead. There are, there are, that's an, that's an extended conversation, but I would say three things. First, 
If you fully cost a government, military, or civilian, they are hugely expensive if you fully cost them. Most people don't. They say, you know, a Spec 4 costs $40,000, Blackwater costs $400,000. It's crazy, right? But that doesn't count all of the benefits uh, and support that, that that Spec 4 gets. You know, the, you know, the, the VA benefits, I mean, there's a, there's a huge amount. So that's one. The second thing is uh, CBO actually did this analysis and found that contractors were cheaper, mainly because of the rotation base. Uh, they didn't do the full, fully burdened costing, but their argument was, you know, for the Blackwater, you don't need, you don't need to pay for a rotation base. You know, once they leave, go, they're gone. But for the Spec 4, you can't leave them in theater. You've got to send them back, and you've got to bring another Spec 4 forward. So you basically have to have three or four Spec 4s to keep one of them forward, which you don't need to do for uh, a contractor. That's a longer discussion, but, but the short answer is they are, they are cheaper. But you, have, you, you do have to keep, you know, you, you have to keep on them because, you know, there's tremendous opportunities uh, for abuse. Yeah. When you were talking about the, the personnel, I was on the Hulk for a couple of years, and we did a lot of stuff in the past. And yep. one of the big things in 2013 was O&M budget. The O&M budget was exploding. Yep, yep, yep. And my understanding was that we were re in the 2013 to 2021 range, it was estimated that we're going to have, for the Air Force, for instance, there was going to be more civilian uh, workers than there were going to be Air Force reservists uh, with, some, with, 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 with the talent that they yeah. were running around with. So my question is, I understand that it's a big budget, but is it just kind of reining in the, the O&M budget part of the a big step toward maybe being able to divert those funds toward something more pressing like combat mm -hmm. capabilities? Mm -hmm. uh, but, right, but, but you are on the hill. You guys are the problem. I know. Well, I, I, I was a big problem. We, we need to be looking at ourselves in the mirror. I mean, I mean, and I'm kidding a little, you know, but, but, but yes, if you want to rein in your O&M costs, you've got to make some trade-offs. I mean, it's, it's commissaries, it's daycare centers, you know. I mean, it's, it's retiree, you know, it's healthcare. It, try care for life. When 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 I give a talk like this to many groups now, you, I mean you you're this is a fairly sophisticated group, but I will ask people how many of you have heard about the F thirty five program? And that's about everybody puts up and and the problems and you know the associate everybody, everybody understands you know the trade offs and the cost. How many of you ever heard of Tricare for Life? You know that's right. And you get a handful of people, most of them retirees who are on the program. And I said you realize that those two programs cost about the same amount of money every year, but one of them you're totally you know, plugged into the trade-offs, and the other one you never even heard of. So, so the answer is yes, but you have to take on some of these really tough questions. And, and, I, and I mean, I, I'm a beneficiary of TRICARE for Life, and I think all three of us are. You know? not. You're not? Oh, okay. Uh, but, okay, you, you got All right, I'll get off my soapbox there. Uh, all right. Um, compensation growth, we talked a little about you know, healthcare and the compensation growth. I mean, there are, there are two things. First, you know, DOD has tried, and, you know, they may have hit the limit of what can be done there. And then to be fair, you know, if you're going to compete for labor in a market economy, you know, you, the cost keeps going up because, you know, the cost of labor, you know, over time has continued to rise in real terms. All right, I want to move on here, but I think we're okay on time. Um, a couple of conclusions, money matters. Um, 
you know, the cost cap strategies that try to at a BCA level, they all have major shortfalls. You know, you can't execute the current strategy at uh, at, at a BCA sequestration level, <clears throat> and you really need a dispassionate assessment of whether the current force can execute the strategy uh, uh, at current budget levels, because there's a lot of people who would argue that it can't. Scenarios matter. Um, the new scenarios added force demands, you know, things like Russia. Um, how you put them together matters, and I'll, I'll get on my soapbox here. In a, uh, you hear some, sometimes people say, our forces can only fight one war. You know, we can no longer do the two-war uh, um, strategy or, or force size and conflict. And I say that's, well, so we have 58 army brigades. You're telling me 58 army brigades can only fight one war? What kind of a war is it? It must be enormous. And they say, well, no, we can't get the forces to the war on the timeline that the commanders want. Therefore, we, can, we can't fight the war. And I say, no, you can fight the war. What you've done is you've accepted risk. Now, that risk might be unacceptable. You know, maybe you know, waiting nine months or a year for that counteroffensive in Korea is an unacceptable risk. And, I, and that's, I mean, you can make that argument. But, but make, saying you can't fight the war, I think, is a, you know, a, a distortion. Uh, plausible scenario sets. One of the real problems, I mean, let's say, the, uh, since the two major combat operations, two war so constructs was put together, it was always imagined that you would have what they call opportunistic aggressors. In other words, during the 90s, it was Korea and Iraq. You know, the idea being that you know, if a Korean war went off, the Iraqis would see that this was their moment and uh, jump. Uh, the problem is we've sort of run that experiment, and it didn't happen. You know, when our forces were engaged in the Middle East, the Koreans did not jump. Uh, but there are some combinations that are quite plausible, and one of them is China-Korea. Because you could well imagine that if there were a conflict in the you know, China-Taiwan Strait, where the U.S. was uh, deeply involved uh, with many of its forces, you know, the Koreans might either make the, make the jump, or the Chinese might tell the Koreans, you know, now's your moment, and by the way, we've been supporting you for all these years, and you know, the payback is, you know, go now. Uh, uh, which would be a very demanding, by the way, uh, simultaneous uh, demand. And nuclear battlefields are back. And we haven't really thought about them for 25 years. Even during the Cold War, we were very bad about thinking uh, about nuclear battlefields. Uh, it's just very hard. And Wayne is nodding over there because he remembers, you know, during the good old days of the Cold War, when you would have a one-week exercise, you'd fight conventionally, for four and a half days, and on Friday afternoon, you would go nuclear just to test the nuclear release procedures, and then you would stop because who knew what was going to happen at that point? Yeah. Mark, you're really raising a big question there because, as you know, and Mac could speak to this because he was in the Department of Energy, this was radioactive, really, this whole field. And it became radioactive. And People did not go into that field because they knew it was a career killer. And so if it was something that became uh, such that people began to leave that, that career field, 
And particularly in, uh, in the DOD side, mm -hmm. um, officers, particularly in the Air Force and the Navy, where we had custodianship of nuclear weapons, uh, fewer and fewer uh, really went in that area. I worked for 15 years for a DNA contractor, R&D Associates. Mm -hmm. And I know that, that area very, very well. Try to find people with an expertise in nuclear weapons effects. You would have to go back to men who were in their 70s and 80s. You would list. And sure. that's the problem. Uh, so uh, if, well, if, I if hope you haven't were, thrown your old uniforms away. Well, <laughs> we may. They, there may be some people that they, they they've got you know a Rolodex for and they can't fall back, but um, they've been away from it. Oh, that's right. For so long, and that's the problem. Give it to, no, that's right. Uh, for 25 years, we really haven't thought about it. Even during the Cold War, we weren't terribly good at it. But you know, with with the with Koreans now building a nuclear arsenal, with potentially the Iranians uh, in the future. Uh, and with other, you know, the, the Russians talking about escalate to de-escalate, you know, the possibility of nuclear battlefields is much more real, I'd say, than it's been for uh, 25 years. All right, I want to march on here uh, to talk about the candidates, because, of course, it's election season. Uh, when, I, uh, when we presented this in the summer, you know, I, I linked it to the candidates in the uh, presidential elections, you know, to get a little more uh, excitement than just, you know, Budget Control Act and, you know, that. Um, so where are we? All right, here are the five strategies here. When you look at uh, Trump and Clinton, and you and you read all of their statements, which and I've read them all, a lot of common elements, at least what they say. They both talk about re repealing the Budget Control Act because they both recognize you can't build the kind of uh, forces you need for the strategies they foresee with um, sequestration kind of uh, resources. Uh, so that's good. Uh, they both want to emphasize diplomacy, whatever that means. Um, move aggressively to defeat ISIS, you know, build the world's finest military, whatever that means, uh, while increasing innovation and uh, reducing waste. <clears throat> uh, care for veterans, military personnel, families, and then prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons. And uh, so that's on, on, you know, both of their statements. Oh, wait a minute. Here we go. Oh, yeah, here we go. Clinton. You know, she has not put out a very specific defense program, but talks about a stronger set of policies uh, than Obama, particularly confronting Russia and ISIS more aggressively than uh, Obama has. She talks about having a commission on policy and resources to figure out a way to uh, close this gap. Which, you know, I mean, you can argue whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. It's a classic electoral dodge by a front runner, you know, to avoid being specific. But that looks like it lines up with global engagement. In other words, she talks about confronting China, Russia, ISIS, global engagement. Trump um, specified actually came out uh, in Philadelphia about a month ago and laid out a set of forces. The forces track to some recommendations that the Heritage Foundation had made. Uh, uh, and this is what he talked about, an army of 540,000, Navy 350 ships. You can see the numbers there. Uh, Air Force 1,200. Uh, missile defense. Uh, I, I ran it. I ran it through the force cost calculator, and it came out about $80 billion 
above the president's budget, which would put it, um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think about the numbers here, but it would put it a little over about $610 billion a year base budget, excluding uh, the war funding, which on the one hand is way above you know, where we are today and what people are talking about, but by historical uh, measures, it would take, uh, take it from about 3% to 3.5% of GDP. So by, by that measure, it would not be really out of uh, historical experience. The really odd thing is the apparent disconnect of forces and strategy. You listen to Trump talk about strategy, you know, he's talked about uh, pulling forces back, about making the allies pay more for their own defense, uh, about fixing things at home first. Uh, but these forces are designed, or, or would be uh, uh, well-designed, for forward engagement. They're all active duty, by the way. Uh, uh, all the forces he talks about, all these that he points, he points to heritage, and their forces are all active duty. So they're great for you know, going overseas and working with allies and partners and having a navy that's forward deployed around the world. So there seems to be some disconnect between the kind of strategy he's talked about and the forces he's now uh, proposing to build. <clears throat> and just a quick uh, nod towards fiscal uh, reality or fiscal uh, environment. This is, uh, this is the enacted level of, DO of resources for uh, DOD. These are the successive five-year plans with the fit-ups. This is the one in 2012 before the Budget Control Act was um, uh, enacted. Gates said at the time that this was what he regarded as the minimum resources for the strategy. And a lot of conservatives and Republicans have pointed to this as you know, sort of a, 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 the goal for a defense uh, budget. And, and Trump comes in uh, just about there. You can see down here, this is the uh, sequestration level. And the current, actually, the presidential proposed levels are a little above it. They've actually risen a little in the last couple of years. Uh, this is the, the most recent one there, which reflects, I think, uh, a growing consensus uh, around uh, the country to put more resources in defense. In other words, I think the defense budget has, has bottomed out. And then uh, looking at recent budget, uh, the history of recent budget deals, we don't, won't go through all of the uh, individual deals, but the history has been that you know, we have continuing resolutions and threatened shutdowns and even actual shutdowns, but the, the president and the, at least the Republican Congress have come to deals somewhere between the BCA level, the sequestration level, and the president's budget level. So if you had to guess where we might end up in the future, probably going to end up somewhere uh, between there, uh, between the two. Although it's also fair to say, you know, we're going to have a whole new political environment after January. It could be uh, the uh, groundwork for uh, a broader deal. And there's also this building feeling that, you know, we need to put more money into defense. So maybe, um, you know, maybe the resources will be higher. <clears throat> Discretionary caps, I'm just going to say one good thing about, the, about caps. Uh, you know, the Budget Control Act put caps for defense and uh, domestic. Uh, and a lot of people say, well, we ought to remove the caps. And as a budgeteer, I say, no, make the caps higher, but keep the cap. Because inside the government, you get a much better conversation about budgets 
when you have a cap. Because when you have a cap, it means that if you want to put something in, you got to take something out. So when you sit around the table, you know, in the West Wing or, you know, the sit room, and someone says, I want to buy another billion dollars for X, and I'm going to, I propose eliminating a billion dollars for Y, you have a conversation about which is more important, X or Y. The principles, you know, will, will go at it. And you, you have, a, I say, a good conversation about priorities as opposed to someone saying, we need more for X. And everyone say, yeah, 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 let's get more X. You know, X is good. Okay. Well, I've sort of run to the end here, but we've uh, maybe got a couple minutes for uh, questions. Uh, feel free to ask about anything. Uh, yeah. Uh, going back, back to 2013, when I last worked on the TV show, uh, I remember there was a, a guy on the hill, Ar Arnold Panero, yep. Who, yep. who had said... Everyone knows Arnie Panero. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Look at how we do SAS. So I, I do a lot of space policy. We do matches three space policy. You see how our satellite acquisition is just completely incredible. And I'm just wondering how, how how do we get around this? How do we get what we need and still get it quickly? Because you know we need to be speedy and adaptable. Yeah. I mean, we, we could spend an hour just talking I, about I, that. I to be fair. And you know, all of the services have created rapid acquisition offices sure. to try to try to do that. Um, Is this more bureaucracy, though, when you do that? Uh, well, uh, I would say that uh, we're we're pretty good when we do upgrades, uh, and the Army's modernization pro program is entirely upgrades. So they've mostly, you know, now they're in the serial production. So, you know, really, you know, it's, it's, they're cranking out H-60s, they're cranking out H-64s, you know, and H-47s. Uh, and then they just got to there also. Uh, it's when we do, try to do the, the leap ahead that uh, uh, very often we'll, we'll stumble. And, you know, Exhibit A, of course, is FCS. Right. You know, the Army spent whatever, $20 billion and got essentially nothing. Uh, and, and that's why now they're only, not, that's why they're doing upgrades now. Uh, the Navy, you know, also stumbled uh, similarly. But now I think that in reaction to that, now they're doing serial production and upgrades to existing systems. So if you look at the Virginia class submarine, now they're cranking them out. And maybe they'll do the Virginia payload module, you know, putting in the uh, extra module. Um, but that's not, a, you know, that's not a huge jump so you wouldn't expect the same amount of risk and the same same problem. So, so it's a long answer, yeah, but uh, no, yeah, go ahead. Another uh, topic on sure. acquisition reform, particularly with the tech industry. Do you have any thoughts on what Secretary Carter is doing in Silicon Valley and then maybe kind of changing operating methods with technology and Yep, yep. Uh, you know, he's created these, you know, DIUXs, you know, to try to bring in um, um, civilian technology expertise. I, I call this DOD's Uber, uh, by, because they're trying to cut through all of the, you know, so acquisition processes and go right, you know, to, uh, uh, you know, to civilian uh, uh, sources. 
And we'll see if it, we'll see if it, it works. You know, uh, all of these rapid acquisition processes, you know, I, I think can be very successful. You know, if they're done in a limited way and with you know looking at things that are really available. Uh, where they get in trouble is when they try to start de developing complex new systems through rapid acquisition, because then, you know, you end up with the same cost growth problems that you had before, and then the Congress will shut you down because they'll say, that, you know, it's, it's you know, you're getting around the regulations. The other problem is, just as with Uber, you know, there's a reason that all of those regulations are there, uh, and. Uh, and you see this playing out with Uber, you know, in the taxi companies. You know, the taxi companies argue that they have to, you know, meet all of these personnel uh, requirements. They have to screen all their drivers. I mean, they have to do all, you know, provide all these benefits. They have to do all of this stuff that's imposed on them by the regulatory state uh, and that they should not be penalized. Well, the same, you have the same thing on uh, defense. Now, that hasn't come to the fore yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if at some point we're going to, you know, you know, face that, you know, that you're not, you're not, complying with Truth and Negotiations Act. You're not getting the warranties that are otherwise required. Uh, and you've got to be willing to do that. I know. Did you want to say something on that, Wayne? Yeah, um, one, more, one more question. <clears throat> okay. The best uh, answer I ever got out of I don't know the answer to that, but I, I will say that I'm not putting my savings into Bitcoin. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, I have just one, one comment. Uh, we remember a time where a fellow named Norm uh, Dustin said that with cost escalations and, and uh, acquisition for airplanes going away, what, at some point the United States could have one airplane 
and all the services that have to take place. Please thank me and for this Well, happy to do it. Glad we were able to.